for the opportunity to speak with you this morning. It's a privilege to be here this morning and to share God's word with you. Um, Patrick, your pastor, is a dear friend of mine. We went to, I was thinking about this, we went to Sunday school together, we went to preschool together, we went to elementary school together, we didn't go to junior high together, it's always a weird time in everybody's life, and then we went to high school together, and then we went to college together, and um, if I could say anything to affirm Patrick to you guys, what, what always comes to mind, you guys just finished going through the book of Philippians, right? In Philippians chapter 2, Paul is speaking of his friend Timothy, who he wants to send to the people at Philippi. And he says of Timothy, he says, um, what's special about Timothy, he says, of all the people I have, there's no one else like him because he's genuinely concerned for your welfare. And if you do ministry long enough or you're involved in church long enough, you know those people that seem like they're just going through the motions, right? It's their job, so I'm a pastor, so I'm going to do pastor-type things. Um, But that's not my friend and your pastor, Patrick. um, When I talk to him about how's church going, how's ministry going, how are these, uh, how's friendship, shepherding, discipleship, whatever it might be, you see in him uh, a real um, fear of God's word, a genuine fear of God's word, and a concern for you guys. Um, I was just... Uh, yesterday morning I was playing with my son in bed, the classic game where, you know, he wakes up much too early and then he comes in and I don't want to get up, so I want to stay in bed. So, of course, our bed is a boat, right? And everything else is water. And what's in the water? Sharks, right? It's, you got to get in and, you know, we're shooting the sharks or whatever. I don't, my, my daughter's only six months old. I don't know if we feed or if we give the sharks tea when she, I don't know, but my son, so he's, you know, he's actually, oh, there's sharks, and for me, it's, I'm just going through, oh, you know, it's, it's not real for me, um, and unfortunately, that might be the way sometimes do, people do ministry, but that's not your, uh, my friend and your pastor, Patrick, and so, um, anyways, it's a privilege to be here, and thank you, and I, when I think of genuine concern for others, you guys as a church have shown that to our family. Um, I remember, talking with Patrick. I can't remember if it was, I think it was while we were still in Vietnam after I had gotten in this pretty good car accident and um, emailing back and forth or Skyping or whatever it was with Patrick and him talking about how he, how he told you guys about what happened and you guys had prayed for me and I was like, all right, come on. These people don't even know me. Yeah, right. They really care. And, but I've seen your, uh, the, the care of the church family of Christ Bible Church for us from um, medical care to prayer to um, finances to Christmas gifts and all sorts of things that um, I would not have expected. So thank you um, for that. Hopefully I can return um, that a little bit more uh, this this morning and this will be interesting and you won't fall asleep. Um, or maybe you want to fall asleep and I'll be disappointing you because this is Sunday morning nap time. Um, but uh, anyways, one quick other qualifications before we get started. Um, Patrick asked me to speak about missions, uh, this whole idea of taking the gospel to places that haven't heard, uh, the, heard the good news of Christ. And um, he asked me, this was uh, almost three years ago when he was the college pastor over at the bridge to speak about a similar topic. And um, so 
on the slight chance that you were there three years ago and on the even slighter chance that you remember what we talked about that night. Um, some of this might be familiar, so um, I don't know. Maybe I don't think I should apologize. Maybe God wanted to remind you of that this morning. Um, but just so you know, we are aware of that. Um, so when we talk about missions, when people preach about missions, sometimes I'm concerned that it becomes a little too big almost. So, you know, people start talking about the millions of people out there in the world that have never heard the gospel. It becomes um, people uh, maybe cause guilt. I've heard people say things like, like this. This sounds dramatic, right? Um, it's not if you should go be a missionary. It's do you have a good reason to stay here? Right? And you're like, oh, I don't know. Never thought about it like that. And, um, and, and then it becomes this big thing, and we feel vaguely guilty, but we don't know what to do practically, and we can't all go, right? And we can't all play global Christian musical chairs and switch places around the world um, to go to the place. Because if we all went to the places that, that where the gospel's not going, then we'd all have to come back because then we left. And how does that, um, you know, how do, how do we think through these things? And then... Um, Sometimes it can become highly spiritualized, right? Um, this, um, I remember hearing this story one time. Or, um, yeah, so I, my parents, I don't know why exactly. Um, they're here. You can ask them after, afterwards. Uh, my parents heard me to hear Elizabeth Elliot speak. This was a long time ago. I don't even know if she's still alive. She was really old back then. Apparently, I'm getting some nods. She is still alive, so now she's really old. And I'm sure still really godly. Um, I was, like, late elementary school or um, junior high school. So she speaks, and she tells this story of um, Amy Carmichael. I don't know if you've ever heard of Amy Carmichael. So Elizabeth Elliot is so old that she heard Amy Carmichael speak when she was young. And Amy Carmichael is, like, from the 16 or 1700s. Um, <laughs> so um, anyway, so she told this story. Now, Amy Carmichael's great, by the way. If you've ever get a chance to read her her book, um, a book that actually Elizabeth Elliot wrote about the life of Amy Carmichael called The Chance to Die. It's wonderful. God used that a lot in my life. So I love Elizabeth Elliot's great, and Amy Carmichael's great. But they told, she, Elizabeth Elliot told this story of Amy Carmichael, who's Scottish or British or something. I'm not going to imitate the accent. Um, but she said... As a young person, Elizabeth Elliot heard Amy Carmichael speak. And Amy Carmichael, apparently she was really short. She had to stand on this box to be able to see over um, the lectern. And she said, when I was young, this is Amy Carmichael speaking, when I was young, I, God spoke to me, and he said, go to China. I said, okay, God, I don't know where China is. So I got a map, and I found China on the map, and I said, okay, that's where I'm going to go. And now, I don't know about you, but that's not usually how God and I interact, right? God doesn't tell me to go to places I've never heard of, and then I open up a map and, map and say, oh, wow, I guess it is a real place. Maybe I should go there. And, and then so, how do, so that becomes hard to relate to. Um, so instead of it being this spiritualized thing that, that's hard to relate to, or as, instead of it being this nebulous big thing, we're talking about the whole world and the global state of evangelism, and, and it's hard to get my, my, uh, my own mind around. Um, hopefully, to this morning, I want it to be simple for us. I, I want to present a very simple thesis, right? Um, my idea for this morning is that if our God 
our king, our master cares about something, we ought to care about it too, right? If, for example, if I'm a wife and my husband is really emphasizing budgeting, you know, we got to be careful with the finances, then it'd be my job to pay attention to that and pay attention to what I spend and how much I spend. If my employer is focusing on customer service, interacting well with our customers, then I should take that into account as I do my job. Now, I still have all the other things my employer might want me to care about, like finances and staying under budget and whatever it might be. And so uh, when we talk about missions, it's, this is an aspect of the Christian life. This is, and we still have to um, love people and forgive and be patient and all these things. But hopefully what we're going to see, uh, we're actually going to look, starting in the book of Genesis and going all the way to the book of Revelation, We'll skip some parts in between, don't worry. Um, but uh, I, I want you to see that, uh, hopefully we'll see this morning that throughout Scripture, from the beginning of redemptive history to the end, that God's ambition, his priority has been to take the gospel to places where it's not going, to bring people into his family that we might not think of as traditionally being part of his family. And then if that's the priority and passion of our God, then it should be our priority and passion as well, right? Um, so if you're taking notes this, this morning, let's put it like this. Um, we're going to just have two simple points for this morning. Number one, we need to understand God's global ambition. Understand God's global ambition. Hopefully this is not... Here's, here's what I'm really trying to get against. You know how you hear people say, and this, this, there's nothing wrong with saying this, but hi, people will use the phrase... Oh, I've always had a heart for missions. You've heard that phrase. It's a good Christianese type phrase. And there's nothing wrong with saying that. But as soon as you say it like that, oh, I've, I've just always had a heart for missions. So therefore, I'm, you know, you ask some high school girl why she's going on a missions trip. Oh, I've just always had a heart for missions. So I'm going to go on this trip. What, that's, what that can sound like is it sounds like something like, why do you do kids ministry? I've always had a heart for young kids. Why do you work with youth? I've always had a heart for high school students. And, and with that, it's kind of imp- it, it might seem to be implied that you care about high school students. That's great. I can't relate to high school students, so you'll serve that way and I'll serve in another way. Right? You care about homeless ministry, so you're working with homeless people. And that's great. That's great that God's given you that passion. But... If I was to say something like, you know, I've always had, um, God's really been growing in me a heart for being thankful. Or I really have a heart for loving people. You might not have a heart for loving people, but I I mean, that's part of what it means to be a Christian, right? You don't have a heart for loving people. You obey Jesus, and Jesus tells you to love people, right? And so, again, what hopefully we see this morning, starting if you can turn to Genesis chapter 12, in Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to end up all the way in Revelations is that throughout history, throughout God's work with his people, is God has always had this focus that it's bigger than just us. It's bigger than just the people that he's working with. Genesis chapter 12 is a familiar passage when God calls Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless, bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So at the beginning of Genesis, after the fall, we had the promise of a Savior. God's going to send a Savior to bring salvation to the descendants of Adam and Eve. That's everyone, right? And then God focuses that. He, he, he reintroduces that promise to Abraham, and it says, through you, I'm going to bring this Savior. But this is, this is not just for Abraham. You can see that in his descendants. At the very end, he says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So as God starts working intimately with this group of people called the nation of Israel that come from Abraham, it's not just working with the nation of Israel. God provides this hint at the beginning that it's bigger than, than, than just them. And this promise is repeated throughout Genesis. If you go to Genesis chapter 26, for, for those of you that graduated from Sunday school, you might remember Abraham's first son is Isaac. His, the promised son is Isaac. And the promise is going to go from Abraham to Isaac. In Genesis 26, verses 3 and 4, God is now speaking to Isaac, and he's going to repeat the same thing. Genesis 26, verse 3, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore with Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give to you your, I will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So we have this repeated again, that God wants his people to focus on not just what God's doing with them. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. If you go to Genesis chapter 28, verse 14. Genesis 28, verse 14. God's speaking with Jacob, and he says, Your offspring offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall be spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. I'm giving you all these blessings, but in that, and in you and your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Bigger than just you. Now, Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One of those sons is going to be the patriarch of Jesus. Jesus is going to come through the line of Judah, right? If you go to the end of Genesis, Genesis 40, um, yeah, Genesis 49, verse 8. Genesis 49, verse 8. Jacob is giving promises, blessings to all his sons. And he speaks to Judah specifically. Judah, your brother shall praise you. This is verse 8 of Genesis 49. Judah, your brother shall praise you and your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? Now look at verse 10. It's bigger than just Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Not only is the king of Israel going to come from Judah, the king of the world is going to come through Judah, right? God's focus is bigger from the beginning. He's trying to, to, to hammer this into his people that it's bigger than just the people that he's working with right now. God's people start to learn this. We're going to see this in a couple of different places. Um, go to 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17, it's a familiar story about David and Goliath, not often talked about when we talk about missions, but I want you to see how God's people start to build in this priority. 
in their, into their own thinking. First Samuel 17, verse, let's start in verse 45. Actually, let's start in verse 41. This, this paragraph has an interesting, uh, I think the theological term for this paragraph is trash talk. Okay? So you have Goliath and David speaking to each other. David comes out, Goliath looks at him, Goliath's a lot bigger than him, and he says things like, verse 43, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Or, um, where's the other one? He said something else. Oh, yeah, and then then the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Now, a lot of times when we think, when we hear the story of David Goliath taught to us in Sunday school, we, um, it's this story about how Small people can do big things for God, right? That's what it is. Even if you're small, you can do big things for God. But the point of, not, of this story is not how big Goliath is. The point of this story is not how small David is. The point of this story is how big David's God is. Okay? Look what David says, verse 45. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, of Yahweh, the God of Israel the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This is a big deal. You're coming not against me and my country. You're coming against my God, and my God's not going to stand for this. Verse 46, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give more trash talk. You can see it. Um, Look at verse 47. Oh, no, sorry. The end of verse 46. I'm going to do all these things for you. What's the purpose that, at the end of verse 46, is that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. This is not just the survival of the nation of Israel right now. This is an opportunity for the rest of the world to see how big our God is. And David uses this challenge, this opportunity, not just to overcome a personal challenge in his life, not just to prove himself, but to show the rest of the world how big their God is. David's son, Solomon, learns the exact same thing. If you go to 1 Kings chapter 8, 1 Kings chapter 8, what you have in 1 Kings chapter 8 is Solomon builds the temple. We finally get the Ark of the Covenant out of this tent. We're going to put it in a real house with a real building, with a real temple. And this would seem very Israel-focused. It's this place for the people of Israel to come worship and to come sacrifice. But God's people understood that that's not how their God worked, that it was not just for them in the San Fernando Valley or the Jerusalem Valley, wherever they were. If you look at Solomon's prayer that starts in verse 22, he starts praying for all these things. If we get defeated in battle because there's sin, and we come to this temple and we pray and we confess our sin, Hear our prayer, God, and forgive us. If we have a famine in the land and there's no rain and we, and, and we need your help, God, if we come here and we pray, hear our prayer at this temple and send the rain that we need. But if you look in verse 41, it's bigger than just the people here in Israel. Verse 41 of First Kings 8. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house, 
here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Okay, we want to use this as a perfect opportunity not just for us and the worship that we're involved in but we want people from other nations to come and when God hears their prayers and answers their prayers they're, they're going to say, wow, this God is real. This is the true God and they're going to worship him. That's Solomon's goal in building the temple. You see this global priority, this global ambition in the people of our God in the Psalms. There's multiple Psalms that that we could look at. I'm just going to look at a couple. Psalm 96. This is part of the things that they would sing about and pray about and worship our God with. Think about it this way. If we, as God's church, if we as individuals were to serve God perfectly, if we were to absolutely perfectly praise God, reflect him, give glory to him, if I was to do that perfectly, I would still just be me praising God, right? God deserves a lot bigger than just me, right? He's, he's a lot bigger and more beautiful and glorious than just one. He's bigger than just us. He deserves more than just us. And God's people realize that. Psalm 96, O oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Okay, uh, there's more Psalms. Let's go to the end of the book of Psalms. Psalm 148. These people are longing to worship God, but not just to have themselves worship God, but to have all the nations of the world worship God. Psalm 148, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it will not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his words, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. Now look at verse 11. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the world. Right? These these people of God are are embracing and adopting God's ambition. And then look at, how, look at how, so we have praise the Lord in verse one, or Psalm 148, Psalm 149. Look at Psalm 150, the last psalm in the book of Psalms. Look at how it ends. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud crashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The very end, the crescendo of the book of Psalms ends with not just us praising the Lord, but the entire world praising the Lord. We're going everywhere. I, I, I almost feel like I should apologize, but I'm not going to because I want you to see that this is throughout Scripture. If you go to the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 36, we have the story of Hezekiah. It might be a familiar story to you. <clears throat> Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, invades Israel. 
He invades Israel. We're going to take down the nation of Israel. And he sends one of his servants, the Rabshakeh, to go bring this announcement ahead of time. Guys, we are going to destroy you. Just, this is going to be bad. If you look in verse 18, it says, The servant of Sennacherib coming to announce to the people of Israel that they are going to be defeated. Verse 16 of Isaiah 36. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Israel. Excuse me, I said that wrong. That's not verse 36. Verse 18. There's no verse 36. Verse 18. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you, the Lord, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamat and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Okay, now, does anybody know the answer to this question? Does anybody know? Can anybody tell me where the gods of Hamat and Arpad and Sepharvaim? I couldn't tell you, right? I, I, I don't even, I've never even heard of those countries, let alone what the names of their gods were. And that's Sennacherib's point, like, you got your God, and you think he's going to protect you. All those other gods didn't make a difference. Now, notice how Hezekiah responds. Turn over to chapter 37. Chapter 37. Hezekiah's praying to God. We're not going to read the whole thing, but just look at verse 20. This is not just, oh, I'm going to die, God save me. It's not just about Hezekiah. Hezekiah knows it's bigger than just him. Uh, let's look at um, verse 18. Excuse me. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and all their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. But there's a difference. And this is an opportunity for our God. So now, O Lord, verse 20, so now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand in order that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. That's his goal. Is that our goal when we face trials, when we have something difficult to come upon us? First of all, are we, are we out in the world making disciples? Then people know that we're followers of Jesus Christ and they, they, they're involved in our lives enough to see our trials and see our trust in God and then see God come through for us. Hopefully we're out, we have relationships with unbelievers that they would see this. But then when we, come, when we encounter trials, is that... Do we see this not as just as an opportunity for God to help us, for us to trust in him, but for other people to see not just our trust in him, but the trustworthiness of our God? That's how God's people worked, even in the Old Testament. This is not just like a Matthew 28, Great Commission, Jesus thing. Like, this is something throughout history. Um, you, know, you guys know the story of Jonah, right? He's sent from Israel to a new place. He's sent to Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. I did a little bit of research I don't know if this makes me a nerd, on Assyrian warfare techniques. So this is the guy that, Jonah's a prophet in Israel, and he gets sent to another country to warn them of God. God wants to, to save these people, right? And so, uh, who did he send them to? The Assyrians. Uh, some of the things that the Assyrians used to do when they would be involved in warfare, they would capture people, skin them alive, just cut their skin off them. Sometimes they would behead them and then cut their skin off. Like they're already dead, but that's just how, that's just what made the Assyrians tick. They would also, as a form of psychological warfare, they would take their prisoners, 
they would blind them, they would gouge out their eyes, and then they would drop those prisoners off on the, the country that they were about to attack so that those people would wander around blindly talking about how bad the Assyrians were. And sometimes that would work so well that the, those countries would just surrender. Like they just didn't even want to mess with the Assyria. These are, these are how bad these people were. And these are the very people that God sends Jonah to. Now you know the story of the storm and the fish and the vomit and goes. And, um, now the way, again, Sunday school, how is this always taught? Why does Jonah not want to go to the Assyrians? Why does he not want to go to Nineveh? Because they're bad. They're going to hurt me. I'm scared, right? That's not how the story is taught. Look at the end of Jonah. If you can turn to the book of Jonah. The end of chapter 3 and then the beginning of chapter 4. So Jonah preaches. He says, guys, God's going to destroy you. You're bad. He's upset. And the people of Nineveh actually listen. They repent. The king repents. Verse 10 when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, now this is not a good example, but notice the thinking of the people of Israel. This, is, this has been pounded into them so much that he says this, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He didn't run away because he was scared of the people of Nineveh. Jonah ran away because he was scared that God would save them. He's like, I know God, and if I go preach there, they're probably going to, they don't deserve that. And so even though Jonah's not a positive example, you can see that God's people understood that this was our God's priority. This, you can also see this throughout the ministry of Jesus. Um, we're going to look at just, we're not going to look at everything because it's, it's, it's everywhere in the ministry of Jesus. But let's just look at um, two places. Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, I don't have time to read everything in this story. It's great. So Jesus starts doing his ministry. He's going around, he's preaching, he's doing miracles. Everybody thinks that's great. They're excited. In Luke chapter 4, he comes back to his hometown, the town of Nazareth, when he grew up. He was just a guy in the city. They all kind of knew him. Now he's doing all these amazing things. Hometown hero comes back. Very excited about this. He starts preaching, verse 17, 18, and 19. He begins to teach. Verse 22, they spoke well of him. This is going good. They like it. They're excited. Notice where the story goes. The story turns south really fast. Verse 23 of Luke 4. And he said to them, Dallas, you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What you heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Miracles over there? Can we get, I, I'd like to see that. And he said, Truly I say to you, no profitable ex- prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to no one, sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Okay, so they're all excited. Good teacher, miracles, let's do some miracles. They're all excited, they're waiting, they're waiting. And Jesus said, let me tell you two stories. Remember how we, we the, you know, the prophet helped that, that gal, the widow, and remember how he healed that, that, that leper? And notice the logical, so we're excited, we hear two 
kind of random stories from the Old Testament. And notice the logical response, verse 30 or 28. When they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. They rose up, drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the cliff on which that the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. It's just, it goes really south really fast. Well, how did we go from being excited to wanting to throw him off a cliff? Now, the passage that Jesus talks about in verse 18 and 19, the very messianic passage, there's this promise that Israel is waiting for. We need a savior. Maybe this is the guy. He can do miracles. Jesus even said that this promise is fulfilled. Maybe this, we're excited. This is going to be good. We want a savior. Now, why does Israel want a savior at this time? They're under the rule of Rome. They want somebody who will come and lead them, lead them out of the power, from being underneath the power of Rome, and they can have their independence and their freedom. Jesus says, I'm your savior. But if you want me to be your savior and you want me to be your king, I'm going to do things the way God always did them in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, there was a famine, and God didn't send Elijah to someone from Israel. He sent Elijah to someone outside of Israel to give them food. There's lots of lepers in the time of Elisha. Elisha didn't heal the, the, the Jewish lepers. He healed a Gentile leopard. And they realized, wait a sec, if this guy's going to be our king, he's not all about us. He's, bringing, he's about bringing this message to everyone, and we don't want to have anything to do with that kind of king, and they want to throw him off a, um, off a cliff. And Jesus says from the beginning of his ministry, if you're going to be a part of my program, if you're going to follow me, it's bigger than just you. It has to be bigger than just you. Um, we'll look at one, so that's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We'll look at the end of his ministry in Luke, or excuse me, Mark 14. I said that wrong, Mark 11. Excuse me. Mark 11, Jesus cleanses the temple. You know the story? Now, quick archaeological background on the temple. The temple was this building. It had been built by Herod. Is that right, Herod? Yeah, Herod. Sorry. Um, and then there was these successive courts outside, courtyards outside the temple. There was three successive courtyards. The first, the inner courtyard, was called the Court of the Men or the court of Israel. So you had the temple, only the priests could go inside the temple. And then outside of that, you had the court of the men. And only Jewish Israelite men could go in and worship God in that courtyard. Outside of that, you had the court of the women. Jewish women could not go in the temple because they weren't priests. They couldn't go in the court of the men because they weren't men. But they could go into the court of the women and they could worship God there. On the largest outside court, it was much bigger than the, the, than the two smaller courts, was called the Court of the Nations or the Court of the Gentiles. And that's where if you were not Jewish but you feared God and you wanted to worship him, you couldn't go all the way in, but you could go to the court, this large outdoor courtyard, and you could worship God there. That's also the place where we are selling animals. We are selling animals to sacrifice. We're changing money and I, don't, I mean, I don't know how it was 2,000 years ago, but you can kind of imagine a Middle Eastern market, you know, Aladdin, where they're walking down the market, and fresh fish, and not that they had fish, and the, they didn't sacrifice fish, but that's not the point. But it's, 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 I mean, it's this place where you're supposed to be, you, you can picture this, like, Middle Eastern market, animals and money changing and the whole deal, and animals going to the bathroom and all this sort of thing, and that's the place where the Gentiles were to worship. Now, notice what Jesus says. Mark 11, verse 15. Came to the temple, he entered... Uh, they came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. 
And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seat of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, notice what he says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. You want to get our God upset? You want to get Jesus mad? Keep other people from other nations from being able to worship God. That's not an ideal worship environment, right? To have all these things going on around you. This was the place where the people from other countries could come and worship the true God. They were not able to do that, and that made Jesus upset. Okay? We're running out of time. There's more passages that we can show you. Um, and throughout the ministry of um, Paul, we're not going to turn there, but let's just go to the end in the book of Revelations. Revelation chapter 7. This is what our God has been working through throughout the Old Testament, throughout the ministry of Jesus, throughout the New Testament, and this is where history ends. Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. After this I looked, this is a scene in heaven, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. So what God is working towards, he will absolutely accomplish at the end of history. And this has been our God... This is what our God has made it clear from the beginning when he called Abraham, and this is where he, where he ends it, that this is what he's working towards. And so like we said at the beginning, if this is the priority of our God, if this is the ambition, the goal of our God as his servants, as his people, this should be our goal and priority and ambition as well. So if you're taking notes, we, having understood God's global ambition, our second and final point is simply we need to adopt God's global ambition. Adopt God's global ambition. Now that word ambition, I'm not sure if that word concerns you. It's not something that we think about sometimes, especially in relation to God. If God's ambitious about something, he's going to accomplish, right? It's not, it's not like God's trying to do things. God is doing things. But for ourselves, if we are ambitious about something, if we're working, uh, an, an ambitious person has a, has a specific goal in mind, an unflinching commitment to, to reach that goal. And if, when there's roadblocks, when there's failures, when, there's, when it's difficult, we might have to go back and examine what we're doing it, how we're doing it, why, our motives behind, but that goal doesn't change. And that should be, if that's our God's ambition, that, could be, that should be our ambition as well. How do we do that then? How do we as God's people make that our ambition? For some of, for some of us, it might be good to, Simply start with repentance. I don't know. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, and, and you can examine yourself in light of God's word. And you, and you might be honest with yourself. You might, for the longest period in my life, that, this was the case for me, that this was not what I cared about, right? Um, you, you would ask my wife when she was five years old what she wanted to do when she grew up, and she would have told you she wanted to be a missionary. Growing up, I liked video games and girls. Right? That was not the passion and priority of my life. And so we have to then, if we see throughout Scripture, this is what our God cares about. Maybe just the simple start is repentance, right? To say, God, I'm not, that's not where I am. That's not what I care about. Now, our God is faithful to believe. I mean, that's, 
that's where the Christian life starts, right? And that's where it continues. Paul in Colossians 2 says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, right? So maybe we just need to, don't try to like, this is hard to do, right? We're talking about our emotions, our desires. You asked me to, um, it's probably a bad example. I'm a, uh, I'm a UCLA football fan. Not always the most proud about that. But if you asked me to start caring about USC football, like if you wanted me to like promote USC, it just, how, you, how do you change your heart? Like, how do you go from something you've rooted for your whole life, what you've been working towards your whole life to, cha- to change that? I mean, that's something that only God can do in us. So if that's not what we care about, let's repent and say, God, by, through the forgiveness that's provided in your son and by the strength that you provide through your spirit, I want to care about this. I want to work towards this. So then practically, what does that look like? How do we, make, how do, how do we have this ambition and work towards this? Um, our prayer would be one thing, right? We didn't look at it. In Matthew 6, again, right in the beginning of, of Jesus' ministry, Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, his disciples ask him, how do I pray? What does prayer look like? And notice where he starts. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. He doesn't just say, your will be done in my life. He teaches from the beginning that our prayer should be globally focused, that, it, that it's, it's a universal focus, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not just I mean, and this sounds like kind of like big stuff. Like at first, you know, you're discipling someone and they should start praying, number one, and then they should start praying that God would be working in their lives. And if they're doing really good, then maybe they'll like start praying for their neighbors and their people at work. And then if they're doing really, really good, then maybe they're thinking about the rest of the world. That's not where, Jesus doesn't like say like eventually let's get to this. He starts right at the beginning. If I'm going to teach you how to pray, pray for the whole world. Now that can be a little hard to do. How do you, what does that prayer look like? God please save the world and the people in the world like how does that how does that look and it's good to to perhaps focus and center that um, on certain places. And it's a great thing to do might be to ask the leaders in your church, who are the missionaries that our church supports if they're in the Philippines or wherever that might be um, and then in the world we live in, most people write you know email updates and you can you can be praying for the rest of the world, but it's not just the world. It's, I'm praying for these specific unbelievers in these countries that are being, that have relationships with these specific missionaries. And, and you, can, you can start to focus your prayer and see the highs and the lows and what's, what's working, what's not working, and stuff like that. And then hopefully our, our, our ambition moves beyond just prayer to tangibly partnering with people that and we can have a tangible partnership with other missionaries to say, not only am I going to pray for what you're doing, but I'm going to, I mean, that could be supporting them financially. That could be, imagine somebody comes in here um, as an example. You might never heard of the country of Mauritania. It was a country, it's a country in West Africa that my wife and I thought about going to a while back in the day. It's, um, it's an unreached country. There's like, it's, you know, 99% no Christians. Um, the capital city has sandstorms 200 days out of the year, and, um, and the um, like one in ten k- kids in the country are orphans. They've lost one or both of their parents. Like, so somebody comes in to your church and they're trying to 
you know, develop partnerships for people that are going to be involved in their ministry. And that's, that's how my wife and I see ourselves, is we're extensions of the ministry of Christ Bible Church in Vietnam, seeking the same goals in a new place. But somebody comes in like that, going to, for example, Mauritania, and they explain what they're trying to do to go make disciples and be used by God to see churches planted there. Hopefully your first thought is, yes. Like that's, what, that's one of the goals of my life. That's what I want to see in this world accomplished. And so let me partner with you. Let me pray for what you're doing. Let me help support you financially so you're freed up to do ministry. Let me, when you're back here, let me babysit for you so you can go on a date night and have a strong marriage and have a strong foundation so then you can go then do good ministry, whatever it might be. That it's, it's this relationship that you start to invest in what God's doing throughout this world. Um, and then let me, let, me, let me do one thing right here. This might sound crazy to you, but... Um, as we seek to practically live out the, this ambition, I think that we should ask ourselves this question. We should ask ourselves this question. Is, do I think, in light of God's priorities, do I think that Southern California, am I convinced that Southern California is the best place that I can serve King Jesus? Am I convinced that Southern California is the best place that I can serve King Jesus? And for a lot of us that, you know where I'm going with this, right? Like maybe some of us should move overseas and go to places where the gospel's not going. And that might be, seem unthinkable to some of you. And for some of us, that, that is not what we should be doing, right? I, I would imagine um, that there's probably people in this church who are, support, for example, supporting their parents financially or um, helping their parents medically. You remember that story, right, when the Pharisees were like, hey, mom and dad, sorry, can't help you this month. I gave my money to God. And Jesus was upset. He's like, no, no, you don't understand God's priorities. Like, you need to take care of your parents. And so there's probably some people in here that the best, I would imagine for most of us, the best place that we can serve God is where he has us right now. But this has been and always will be the priority of our God to take the gospel to where it's not going. And the need is great um, if you do look at the state of world evangelism. There's websites that keep track of these kind of things. It's like the last I read, when I was in high school and just starting to care about this sort of thing, it was about 25% of the world was unreached, lived in a place where they couldn't um, hear the gospel if they wanted to. I was just looking at this recently a couple of months ago, and the number is now about, it went from 25% to 30 or 40%. And I don't know if that's because they started counting differently. I'm not sure why that change happened in 10 years. But um, we live in a place where um, God's working towards this goal, and he's invited us to be a part of that. And so let's be committed to that. If it's here, if it's moving, whatever it might be, let's make it our goal not to be missionaries, not to think that's somehow more spiritual or anything or anything like that. But let's say... I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to live out his priorities. And let me think through how, let, you know, we have the wisdom, the leadership of our churches. We have God's word. We have his spirit. We can pray and ask ourselves, God, how do I live out your priorities day to day in the future? And if we're committed to that, wherever he might take us, then I think we'll be pleasing to him. Let's pray.